0: Good morning, it is great to be here, and uh, believe it or not, I did become a grandfather a week ago, um, and what a joy it's been. Um, I don't think there's a more profound experience as a father to, um, I walked in the room that Friday night, my daughter went into labor two weeks early, so we were a little shocked, you know, in our family, we're always two weeks late, it seems like, um, But she went and labored two weeks early and I walked into the room to pray with she and my son in law. And to look at your daughter in a hospital bed about to give birth to your grandson, you know, I just had this flashback of my wife being there, you know, 25 or so years before. And uh, just one of the most significant things that I've ever experienced. And I'm still kind of numb. Uh, over it all and, and taking it all in. But it is good to be here this morning. Um, I, I want to do uh, something. I, I want to build somewhat of a theology of diversity for us this morning um, and on a level that I hope will really connect with each of us individually. Uh, so to do that, I'm going to go to um, not a traditional passage, but uh, one that I think will um, will show forth the beauty of diversity in the glory of God. Genesis chapter two and verse eighteen. Genesis two, eighteen. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice this morning that your spirit is our teacher. He is the one that leads us unto Christ, crying out, Abba, Father. He is the one that creates the stirring in our soul, and he is the one that changes us from who we are to who you want us to be. And so I pray that you would visit us, O God, by the power of your spirit, And you would not leave us as we are. Father, I pray that you would ignite a fire in our soul for a life that is different, a life that is passionately directed towards you and toward the mission and the mandate that you've called us to and created us for. Uh, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his glorious gospel, and I pray that it indeed would be our bread and butter this morning, that it would be everything to us, and that indeed we would... We would be refreshed in your glory as we look to your word now, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. It was four years ago that I drove from Fort Collins, Colorado to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I was planning a church in Fort Collins and was asked to do a wedding of a young man and, and young woman in our church, and they wanted to get married in Jackson Hole, and I said, I will sacrifice and I will make the drive. So, um God must uh, love me because those that had planned to go with me on that trip backed out, and whereas I publicly showed, um, you know, regret over that, inwardly I was really excited. I I grabbed my fly fishing gear, I threw it in the car, and I hightailed it to Jackson Hole to get there as early as I possibly could, and I was staying in a log cabin about 200 yards from the Snake River, suffering yet again. and, and I went out into the snake, and it, it was mid to late September. The Teton Mountains were just jutting up into the sky, snow-capped. There was a light snow coming down. And I'm in the middle of the Snake River fly fishing, and I look behind me, and there are these huge homes with glass backs and these massive porches. And this moment just froze. <laughs> as I looked into the glass, I could see the reflection of the Tetons behind me, and I could see the snow coming down. And I just wanted everything to stay as it was. And then I began to dream. Well, there is a small little church in town. Uh, maybe I could move here, and and I, I would pastor those people, and and I would write Christian books. But really what was going on inside of me was a deeper yearning. Maybe I could move here to a place where I don't think I would need anyone. It seems to me, Adam was in that place. (laughs) It's before Eve is created. He is in the most beautiful place in all the world. He is in the garden of God. And he's alone, and he is the master of creation. He is the ruler. He has complete autonomy (laughs) over creation. Probably a whole lot more autonomy over the animals than I had in the Snake River that day. I think I got skunked, you know. He was living the dream that most of us have. And yet, at this point... In the history of the world, God says this, it is not good for the man to be alone. That's a hard sell on most days. That is a hard sell when you're in the middle of the Snake River with the Teton Mountains jutting in front of you and these multi-million dollar homes behind you and snow lightly falling upon you. And it is a hard sell on most work days, it's a hard sell in your office. It's a hard sell in your home. It's a hard sell in your life with your children. It's a hard sell with your neighbors. It's a hard sell on most days in your church because it seems perfectly reasonable that it would be very good to be alone. It would be very good to have an environment in which you ruled everything, and there was no opposition. There were no competing ideas. The market worked in your favor. And yet God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'm planning a new church downtown. And downtown is racially and, and class diverse. Uh, rich and poor, African American, white, Asian, Indian, just really the gamut most church planning tactics in our country today have the strategy of pursuing the lowest common denominator to make the quickest impact in a city. And if we were doing that downtown, we would probably do it this way. (laughs) We would probably say, let's take 38103, and let's even narrow it down maybe to the art community, and maybe down to just a few neighborhoods or a few condos, because these are a people that already love to be together and, and have common interests, a common race, a common class, and so forth. Why aren't we doing that? because I believe not just that the gospel mandates something different, and and most of us are familiar with that, but I want to propose something different. I want to push against this idea that uh, planting affinity group churches is is the most strategic way and the most effective way to, to, to plant churches. Because I believe not just that the gospel calls us to more, but I believe that you and I were created for more. I want to go back to creation, to talk about diversity a little bit. Let's do that right now. And really the first thing that we need to understand is that we are wired to know real life, not in the stream of of isolation, but in the sea of diverse relationships. I met a a young man a few months ago, and he and I have been meeting uh, somewhat regularly. He uh, grew up in poverty, he um, went to college, has a double major, went um, to uh, seminary, actually in his second year in seminary, and we sat down this week, and and I just asked him some questions about growing up. I said, what was it like? I mean, what kind of poverty were you in? He said, Richard, I remember many days coming home and the lights were off. I remember people from church coming and, and bringing furniture because we had none. And I remember being absolutely humiliated because of the roaches in our home and what they would think about me and what they thought about my mother and my, my four siblings, my single mom and, and four siblings. He said it was rough growing up. But then I asked him this I said, What is the difference? Because There's so many more, statistically, there's so many more young men that grew up in your environment and didn't make it, if you will, to where you are in life. And I don't just mean financially. I mean, they didn't have the drive. They didn't have the goal. They didn't have the passion to move forward and want more. he said, Richard, that is easy. Because not only do I remember coming home many times and, and seeing, my, um, uh, seeing the lights out in my home, but I also remember many days when I came home and I saw my mother on her knees in the living room audibly crying out to God. You see, my new friend is leading me into a deeper relationship in my knowledge of God. Because there weren't many moms of us Christian brothers <laughs> when we got home on their knees crying out to God saying, please pay the bills. Please put food on my table. Please protect my children. I'm desperate. I'm needy. I'm frightened. And if you don't move, we die. I left that conversation because I've been, dis- I've been having a... a uh, a relationship, I've been in a relationship with a, a single mom of, of six children. <laughs> and I, it, it's one of those relationships where I'm kind of listening and I'm trying to figure out, now, how can I help? I mean, how can I get involved? What what would God call me to do? And, and I received a, a message from her this week that she is on the verge of being homeless, of being kicked out of her, her house. She doesn't have a job. She is deeply depressed because she's isolated to her home. She cannot get unemployment. She was denied unemployment, just this string of, of rejections. And I left that conversation, and I immediately got in, in contact with her. Yesterday, she was at a Bible study that we do at Advanced Memphis every Wednesday. And we sat down with her, my, myself and three, other, uh, three ladies, assessing her needs and asking how we can get deep, more deeply involved in her life and how we can make a difference. And we offered to pick her up for church. And what you need to know is one reason why I've been a little standoffish is because a couple of weeks ago, she said she wanted to come to church, and I showed up at her house, I, the pastor, at 4.15 on a Sunday afternoon, and we start at 5, you know. I sacrificed my time to show up, and she wasn't there. And her daughter told me, I'm not sure when she's going to be home. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? She told me she wanted to go to church. And in my heart, I've been kind of backed off thinking, I just don't know if I can do this. And yet, in relationship with someone completely different from me, speaking into my life, speaking his story into my life, I'm responding differently. Because this young man also told me about a church that befriended his mom. And he told me about two men in particular, two white men, that focused in on him, and loved him well. And I'll I'll never forget this comment. He said, they came and they stayed and they've never left. In fact, one of them came to Memphis recently to visit him and spend time with him. Is this an isolated incident? Is it a fluke that my relationship with this young man, 25-year-old man, completely different from me, completely different background, different race, different culture, is it a fluke that this relationship is leading me deeper into God and deeper into the world and deeper into the kingdom work of God? I don't think so. If you look at Genesis the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And we typically focus in on helper. We love that word helpmate because in our minds, especially as men, we think someone that comes alongside of us and helps us in the hard work that we have to do. And that is a legitimate interpretation. But I don't want to look at that quite yet. We'll we'll consider that in a minute. But I want to look at this word suitable, a helper, helper suitable for him. What does it mean? What is a suitable helper? Um, Another translation says, fit for him. This Hebrew word reflects something profound. It's it's basically there to distinguish between Adam and Eve, to say that there there are real distinctions between men and women. But it's also there to say, this is a person who is like but unlike. Like but unlike. And what God is telling us is, it is not good. In fact, we are no good when we are just like. We have to have relationships like but unlike. And you say, Richard, they're just talking about marriage. No. If we fast forward to Ephesians 5, we see Paul giving uh, the guidelines of marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then he says, husbands, you should care for your for your wife as your own body. And he's giving all these directives and he's got you caught. You're deep into the whole teaching of marriage. And then he says, "He says, oh, yeah, yeah, but I'm really talking about Christ and his church. You're like, what? I thought you were talking about marriage. No, I'm really talking about Christ and his church. And what he's telling us there is marriage is not the end. Our marriages are there to reflect something deeper and to give us an experience of something deeper, and it is God's relationship with His bride, the church. And the church, if we fast forward even more to Revelation 7, is diverse. You see helper suitable in Revelation 7, 9, because history is all going toward one one day. It's going toward one day that will never end, basically a marriage ceremony, one in which the bride of Christ is coming down the center aisle and presented to her husband. And we are complete in him. And you have that helper suitable. You have diversity between Jesus and his church. Absolutely. But you also have diversity in the church. Because in Revelation, you see it over and over again. Every tribe, every people, every language, everybody unites for one common purpose, and that is to glorify and to worship the Lamb. We are going to be a beloved community in heaven. Does that sound familiar? The Trinity. God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, must function in a diverse relationship. We typically focus on the likeness of of one another or the common bond that Father, Son, and Spirit have. But I want to focus a little bit on the unlikeness. It's not just the unity of the Trinity that makes them one. It's the diversity of the Trinity. It's the diversity between the Father and the Son. The fact that there there is... And I dare to say this, but go with me here. There is friction. You see it in the garden. Father, may this cup pass from me. In other words, I'm not at this point fully and completely on board, but I am fully and completely submitted to you. Let this cup pass pass from me father forgive them for they know not what they do the assumption there is father you're also a God of justice and I know that you you may slay them but forgive them you see in this economy a difference between father son and spirit there is diversity and in the midst of that diversity there is God so here's what I'm saying God is not depriving me. There's something deep within our souls that, that thinks, you know, especially we're in the middle of the Snake River fly fishing, that thinks God is depriving me not allowing this to be life. But He's not. God is not depriving us by keeping us from having complete control and autonomy over the universe in which we live. He is allowing us to taste the Godhead in the midst of diversity. Think about that. You can't know God. You can't even know what it's like. You can't even relate to God unless you're willing to say, I have to be and experience diversity in my relationships. It is no mistake that I'm experiencing something deeper and greater in relationship with people unlike me, yet like me in faith because I was made to know God in relationship. It's almost as if God has created us to go out and find the most different people that we can possibly find because that is where we're going to know more. The next knowledge of God is going to be in that relationship with somebody more and more unlike me. That seems to be the order in which he's made the world. Well, we're made for diverse relationships. But secondly, diverse relationships are not an end. I hate, and, and I almost hesitated to use the word diverse because I know that many of you shut down when you even hear it because what you hear is diversity training. <laughs> we all have to befriend someone unlike us so that we'll all get along better and there'll be peace and harmony in the workplace and our neighborhoods. No, this is not a social project that I'm talking about. It's not a social project that the gospel is talking about. Diverse relationships are not an end. It's not, let's all go be diverse and then we've, you know, we've reached nirvana. But they are a means to fulfilling God's purpose for us in the world. They're a means for fulfilling God's purpose for us in the world. What do I mean by that? Uh, this past January, uh, I think it was January, maybe. Anyway, the New Orleans Saints won the Super Bowl. There we go. We got any New Orleans Saints fans in here? Yeah, there we go. All right. And while we all sat there and 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 we dripped Rotel dip all over the furniture and drove our wives crazy. These guys are out on the field, laying it all down. They're hugging each other. They're unified. They're one team. But did you notice that black guys and white guys are hugging each other? Uh, did you notice that uh, the guys that grew up from different Different parts of the world, different cultures, different classes, different races. They've been living together all all season. They've been sharing the same hotel rooms. They've been getting their families together. They've been laying it all down because they're a team. I think most of us men are dying inside primarily because of boredom. The best that I think most of us think we can be and experience in life as men is the thrill of hunting and fishing, and nobody likes to hunt or fish more than me, I promise you. I put on my Facebook status last night, it's odd to get up this early in the morning to go preach and not kill something, you know, I typically get up to go kill something or catch something this early in the morning, not preach a sermon, all right, I love to hunt and fish. Most of us are convinced that intramural sports is about as exciting as it's going to get, or training for a marathon, which I run marathons, or doing triathlons. And I'm thinking about doing that. But here's what's sad: Most of us are dying because we think that is as exciting as it gets. Or maybe it's the workplace. Maybe your field of, of competition is the workplace, and it's being better. It's it's getting there earlier, staying there longer, working harder than anybody else because that is as exciting as life gets to you. Can any of us doubt that the members of of, um, the Super Bowl winning team, the New Orleans Saints, felt more alive during that season than any time in their lives? I think not. I mean, all of us. I'm sure every single one of them would say, I felt more alive, more fulfilled, more excited, more like a man during that season than any other time of my life. You want to know why we are so bored and disengaged with life, especially as Christian men? It's because we have forgotten that we have a mandate. We take winning the Super Bowl as a more exciting thrill than the mandate that God has given us as a church. Let me tell you something. We were created to experience thrill and excitement and to live passionately and to lay our lives down for something. We were created. The very first thing God did after He created Adam and Eve is He gave them a purpose. He said, multiply, fill the earth, rule, subdue it, go. And this was before the fall. And it even becomes more, you know, more of a a mandate after the fall. Now we really got to multiply, rule, subdue. Now we really have to go after life. In Matthew 28, one of the last things Jesus did is he said, go. Go. Make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I've commanded you. That that goes back to Genesis and the creation mandate. Basically, he's just, he's just playing that out a little bit more. You have purpose. You have a mission. And it's bigger than winning the Super Bowl. It's greater than doing an Ironman triathlon. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with those things unless those are your only things. Sometimes the best illustration is a negative one. We see that the creation mandate was given in Genesis 1, but then we get to Genesis chapter 11, and we read this. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. You hear this? Remember, rule, subdue, fill, go, go, go. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Do you see what's going on there? Men turned go into come. Men turned fill. Like I mean, just think about this mandate right now. We're all in one place and let's just use this building. What if I said fill this building up, guys? Take it over. Let's fill it. And take it over for God's glory. You would automatically know to do that, you've got to get out of this room and you've got to go. You've got to search. You've got to go explore. And that's what we would do if we took over this building, if we went to rule and subdue it for the glory of God. And we would start planning and and thinking of ways to rule and subdue. And yet we know exactly what these guys were thinking in Genesis 11 because it's exactly what we want to do in our own hearts and unfortunately what we settle with. Because here's the philosophy of Genesis 11 and and the Tower of Babel. Come, let us build ourselves a city. I know God told us to go rule, subdue and all that, fill the earth and all that, but here, we are going to be more, we'll be able to fill the earth more, rule and subdue more if we all come together and build a city that cannot be taken over and we compile all our resources because then we'll be safe, we'll be secure from the outside world and it's just a better strategy than the one that God gave us. If we all huddle in and we all come together, but here's the problem. When you build a city, you never get out of the city because the needs of the city dictate that you stay there. It's hard to go build other cities. People have to get restless and have to go and start another city. Cities don't start cities. In fact, they try to incorporate those that that try to move out and become separate from the city, right? I mean, that's kind of the nature of a city, moving in. Now, apply that to your own heart and your own life, moving in. When I make this amount of money, then I'm going to go. When I get this job, then I'll go. When I retire, then I'll go. When my children reach this age, then I'll go. I can't go there because that's not safe and it could. Are you going? Are you going? As I think about my, my, my friend's mother, she's really the example in many ways. You know, there's a reason why, you know, my friend said his mother's the godliest woman he knows. There's a reason why he admires her faith. There's a reason why he's different. And it's not disconnected from her circumstances. You see, her desperate circumstances and her prayer life are very much very much associated and in line with one another. So what am I saying? Let's go, you know, get in desperate. Let's find the most desperate situations we can find. No, what I'm saying is this. If you are obedient in going, desperate situations are going to find you. I think that's why... I church plant I think it's rooted more in fear of what I would be if I didn't plant churches and I wish I were kidding about that <laughs> um, but but I really think there's something to that because here's the reality when I'm planting a church I typically have a set amount of money for a set amount of time right now and we do right now <laughs> I can't tell our people where we're going to be worshiping in the next two weeks. Our lease runs out and we have to be out. And we've been working hard for several months to find a new place and we hadn't, we hadn't signed a lease anywhere. That'll wake you up in the morning. That'll wake you up at night. That's not boring, I promise you. I don't know who's going to be leading worship this Sunday night. I got word yesterday the guy that was supposed to be is, is not able to come. Uh, As a minister, that'll get you going, especially a guy trying to plant a church and put a good face forward to the community. I have no idea who's going to be doing music, you know, this Sunday night. We have a single mom, the, the woman that I talked about just a minute ago, who's going to be homeless unless we find the funds to pay her rent. We're taking 12 inner city students to a camp in Colorado that they might hear the gospel and we've yet to raise the money needed. But we know it's right and we know that we have to dig deep into the community, especially into the broken. I have another friend who was living in a house and the, the rats were so bad and the bedbugs were so bad. He told me that he they would wake up and his daughter's arms would be swollen because of the bites from the bedbugs. And he just one day said, we're out of here. They got in the car, they went somewhere else, and they're in a house and not one stick of furniture. They're sleeping on the floor. I said, brother, do you need a bed? Yeah, man, that'd be nice. (laughs) Do your children have beds? No, we've got a crib. That's all we have for the baby. You see, going puts you in circumstances that absolutely terrify you but absolutely make you feel alive because then you have to pray and then you have to sacrifice and then you have to look at your own life and begin to ask questions that you would never ask. When God calls us to go as opposed to come, He's calling us to live more by faith and sight. He's calling us to use our resources for the things that that burn in His heart. Dear friends, it makes absolutely no sense to plant a church trying to combine folks that have moved into downtown because they love the nightlife, they love the entertainment, they love the festival and the carnival, there's something every night, there's something fun every night, with people whose median income is about $11,000, and the greatest fund they have is on their front porch with a 40, you know, if, if they can afford it. It makes no sense to try, try to bring a people together that have nothing seemingly in common. It seems like it would be a fiasco. That's why it's not happening. And yet, if you read the Bible and you look at the heart of God, his heart is for the broken and the outcast, and he expects his church to, to have a heart that is for the broken and the outcast. Not as a project, but as a way of living. If you look at the end of time, the picture that Jesus painted, he said he's going to divide the sheep and the goats. And the goats are those that saw those in prison and said, we don't have time and you probably deserve it. The goats are those that look at the hungry and say, yeah, one day, someday. The goats are those that look at kids that don't have clothes and say, you know, well, there's a Salvation Army and there are a lot of nonprofits out there that can do something. But the sheep are those that understand grace and mercy. The sheep are those that have a heart that move into and say, I have no idea how we're going to do this. These problems are so immense, they can't be solved. But we're not here to solve. We're here to love. And see, that's what he's called our church to do, and that's what he's called us to individually. You say, Richard, what are you saying to me? I don't know. I never dreamed I would be back in Memphis planting the church like this. And that's the beauty of of the gospel is it empowers a vision that is outside of your control. And what I think we see in the Godhead, you have Father, Son, and Spirit, but you don't have a dictatorship. You have this struggling relationship figuring it out divinely, perfectly. But you have this struggle, this divine, holy struggle going on, and the outcome is glory. And we were created in that, that image, and that is how we are to live. Struggling, always off balance, never really knowing the next hour, but, but in the midst of it, looking to God and praying and holding on to Him, saying where, how, provide. And friends, I'm telling you, that is a life that is exciting. Because if we look at our city, and we take rule and subdue and fill, literally. Then we've got to look around and we've got to say, how would God rule this city? If Jesus were the mayor of the city and He had complete power as mayor, what would He do? That's your job. Do you think we would have the poverty that we have? One thing that's that's killed me is my wife got involved with Georgia Avenue Elementary School, and she volunteers in the First grade class. And the stories that she brings home uh, break our hearts. Because to be honest with you, the life stories of these children are already written. And it's a life of undereducation, if any education. I mean, it's just what they call education, it's bad. It's despicable, is what it is. Um, Poverty, crime, Drugs, unwed pregnancy is their story unless somebody steps in, unless somebody takes the gospel seriously, unless somebody moves in and rules and subdues in a different way than it has been ruled and subdued prior. How in the world can we do this? Lastly, the power of the gospel is the only way. Uh, Ray Charles is here this morning, and um, his story is is an interesting story. He ought to be the next speaker at Amen. I promise you, you'd be a lot more intrigued by him than me. Uh, He's got a story, Um, and it's a story of uh, violence and a story of gangs and uh, prison and uh, we could just kind of go down the list, uh but that's not the end of his story because his story collided with the story of the gospel uh, last September, I think it was september twenty eighth and the old ray is gone Eleve says it he always talks about the old ray and how the old ray would operate. You can only talk about the old ray when there's a new ray uh Ray is one of my good friends one of my best friends. Uh, he has a seven-year-old son named Rezan. And Ray has never named this, but I told him I was going to talk about him. He said that was okay this, this morning. But the thing that, that Ray has been showing me, uh, I've been humbled by the kind of father he is. I can't tell you how many times we've been together, and he'll receive a call. Rezan is is um, seven years old, and his raison's teacher will call him when we're out doing something or talking or at lunch or whatever and he'll say i gotta go to the school right now raison's in trouble and what i what i know that means is i'm going to the school he said i'm gonna go straighten him out he's going to walk in that school he's going to get razon, he's going to take him out in the hallway He's going to give him uh, a little love on the behind, and he's going to send him back in and say, "If she calls me again, you're dead." But what is more exciting is little Razan loves Jesus, and because of that, little Razan is going to have a different life. I don't know why Ray is coming to downtown Prez, but I can only imagine the amount of faith in Jesus it takes to move toward people unlike Him. Have you ever thought about that? When the gospel explodes, it moves us all in areas that are not comfortable. And for those that have a different story from us, it means moving them into our lives so that we might be blessed. And Ray understands that. We've talked a lot about it. I cannot know God outside of relationship with him. And he cannot know God outside of relationship with me. He told me a story. Uh, There's a little boy coming to our church and he's rambunctious. And there are a lot of times when I look at that little boy and I wish he weren't coming to church. But Ray told me the story. He said he showed up at school at Georgia Avenue Elementary one day and All the little boys, including Razan, had this little boy cornered. And they were laughing at him. They were taunting him. They were pushing him around because he didn't have socks. And it was cold. (laughs) He grabbed Razan. He broke up the crowd. And that night, he and Razan had a talk, the end of which, Razan went and got his best socks (laughs) and said, Daddy, we need to go find Cavion, And they did. And now Kavion is one of his best friends. The gospel is at work in Razan, who's seven years old, and, R- and little Cavion comes to our church. <laughs> and we hope and pray one day, someday, little Kavion is going to know Jesus. And one day, someday, little Kavion is going to be a daddy who loves his wife and cares for his children and fights for his community for the gospel. The gospel is the power to restore us all back to this beautiful, what Martin Luther King referred to as the beloved community. Because here's the story of the gospel. God stopped his car for a homeless, destitute people, and he moved into our neighborhood. He came down in the flesh, and he lived among us, And he lived under the law for us that he might redeem a people like us to present us to God as holy and righteous so that through faith, now God the Father looks at Richard Reeves of all people. With all the stuff I've done in my life and all the stuff I will do in my life, he looks at Richard Reeves no differently than he looks at his son, Jesus the Christ. Why? Because Jesus the Christ is my representation before the Father. He is my righteousness. He, con- he was condemned in my place. And now there is no condemnation for me. And when that story goes deep into your soul, then all of a sudden, any classism, racism, fear, all of that goes to the side because you realize that now that is the mandate that he's been calling you to. It's not rule and subdue with our money and our power and our superior intellect. It's rule and subdue with the mercy and the death of Christ. He died for me, I die for you. He died for us, we die for them. It's simple. It's not rocket science. It's what the gospel has called us to and what the gospel empowers us for. How is the church in Memphis going to look more, look as diverse as the Godhead? How are we going to reflect the kingdom of God better than the New Orleans Saints. you realize that? That team, the New Orleans Saints, looks more like the kingdom of God than the church does. That's embarrassing. How are the rich and poor, the black and white, going to unite? How are we going to move out of our boredom and into a life of utter terror and yet life? We're going to go deep into our story and realize that we were destitute and Jesus came for us. Dear friends, I don't know what that means for you, but I promise you this it means something for every single man in this room. And all it takes is just a few people to begin to hear the gospel, to begin to let the gospel germinate in your heart, and to begin to open our eyes and move out into this world and lay our lives down, doing more than volunteerism, doing doing more than service projects, but saying, We are going to be in the world. And we're going to see the world changed because if God can change me, He can change this world. We will be about the kingdom when we're about the gospel. And it will be diverse because that's where the gospel is changing everything toward. We see it. We've got the ending. It's already written, the book of Revelation. It's a very diverse ending. So may Memphis realize a bit of that ending even now and maybe even through us. Amen. Lord God, we thank you. For the beauty of your gospel and we thank you for the challenge of the gospel and father many of us uh, most of us all of us if we've really heard uh, this message are are frightened and may and probably offended Um, but father we need your grace to grow so large in our hearts that we know that we have a daddy who has the ending we have a daddy who has the results we have a daddy who has the strategy and the plans and the resources and so, Father, may we draw near to you in love in response to your love for us, and may we move us out into this world. May we go, may we rule, may we subdue, may we unite, may we fill this city with the light, the glory of the knowledge of God. And may the poorest of the poor feel it. And may the richest of the rich feel it. And may you change us, O God, that we might be a city that more reflects the light of your glory. And that we might know life in the process. And we might know passion. And we might move out of boredom into all that you've created us for and redeemed us for. And we pray this in the glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, guys.